John chapter 19. If you are new here to East Point, um, let me bring you up to speed on what we're doing in our series. We call it CrossFit. And uh, what we're doing is we're just taking a look at the cross. There are five prepositional phrases in the Bible. We are studying all of them. We're on our fourth one today. We talked about uh, on the cross, in the cross, of the cross. Today we're going to look at the phrase by the cross. And then next Sunday, in a bit of an abbreviated message, because we have the children's program, and the message is going to be a little shorter, tell your friends. <laughs> we're going to talk about through the cross next Sunday, okay? So, uh, but let's talk about by the cross. And in doing so, I want to read to you a text out of John chapter 19, where Jesus talks about those who were standing by the cross. And I want you to consider with me this thought before we read. I want you to consider with me places that you may have been that impacted your life. I remember standing in Washington at the Vietnam Memorial and I remember seeing uh, the World War II Memorial and I remember going to New York right after 9-11 and they were still removing the debris and they wouldn't let us get too close to the area. Those places make an impact on you. We lived in the Dallas area, Dallas, Texas for about 10 years and when people would come into town, one of the things we would do is we would take them downtown Dallas and show them where John F. Kennedy was assassinated and that spot makes an influence on your life, an impact on your life. Anytime you've been to a place where something is commemorated. This week, uh, for instance, we uh, just recognized the 75th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. And those of you that have been there to that site and, and you uh, have witnessed that, it, it impacts your life. When you've been to a place where there has been great tragedy or great sacrifice, it, it is noted there. It makes a difference in your life. And, and so I ask you this question today. Is it possible... Is it possible that many of us have stood by the cross at one time in our life when we trusted Christ as our Savior? We saw that. It was vivid to us. It meant something to us. But then over a period of time, we have forgotten what it was like. Is it possible to stand by the cross, to witness the things that were done upon the cross, and to leave unchanged, to be forgetful of what happened? Before I read, let's pray together. Father, we come to you today and we ask you to bless us, Lord. We need the work of the Holy Spirit in this service. Lord, as we are reminded of what took place on the cross and those who stood by, what they witnessed, I pray, God, that you would uh, just uh, impact our minds and our hearts, Lord. Cause us to know the things you'd have us to know, feel the things you'd have us to feel. And God, we ask now that you bless in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 19 and verse 25 reads this way. Now there stood by the cross, there's our phrase, there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas and Mary Magdalene. Now continuing on verse 26, we'll come back to this thought in a minute, but I want you to see the rest of the story here uh, as far as this passage. Verse 26, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. 
So I want you to imagine with me for a moment, it's a spring day, matter of fact, uh, when Jesus is crucified in Jerusalem. There's probably a bit of a warm breeze and there's all sorts of uh, flowers that are in the air, the fragrance of which are in the air. There's orchids and uh, wild hyacinth and a number of uh, iris are there and lilies have that smell throughout the air. But, but what a time this must have been to stand by the cross it was no doubt a sunny day as the sun grew dark and eventually it was a horrible uh, darkness that covered Calvary and an earthquake caused a trembling. But, but nonetheless, here we are with, with the scene, listening to uh, the mockery that is going on all around us, the crowd that was there and the things that were said and the moaning of the thieves on the cross and the pain and the suffering that Jesus must have been in. It's a lot to take in. Would you agree with me? There's a lot to take in. And what I'd like to do with you for the next few minutes is talk a little bit about what we may have seen if we were standing there or what our ears may have heard as we were standing there. The first thing I want to draw your attention to, we're going to call it simply the condemning crown. If you have your notes and you'd like to write that in, the condemning crown. As you see the Lord Jesus on the cross, and Mary would have seen this, the mother of Jesus, John would have seen this, the others that were there, they would have all seen this. The Bible tells us that earlier, before he was nailed to the cross, he was mocked. He was blasphemed. Earlier, they had taken, the Bible says, the soldiers took and twisted or plaited the vine that had the thorns on it into a crown. John chapter 19 and verse 2 reads this way, And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. This was all part of the mockery. Jesus had uh, been known as the king of the Jews from the time that he was born, prophetically speaking. And here, of course, and we talked about this before, Pilate actually wrote that on the sign that was above the Lord Jesus on the cross. And some of the religious crowd had a problem with that sign. Do you remember that? They said, don't say he's the king of the Jews. Say that he said he was the king of the Jews. In other words, that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Put that on there. And Pilate said, no, what I've written, I've written. So here as a form of mockery, mocking him as this king, they take this crown of thorns and they don't just set it gently on his head but instead they would have taken a small mallet of sorts and beaten it down so that the thorns several inches long each would have pierced the scalp and probably turned as a result of hitting the skull so that it fastened itself on his head. Here is the Savior scourged beyond recognition having been beaten for you and I wearing this crown. If you were by the cross that day, you would see the crown. But it's interesting because while it is meant for mockery, it serves as a bit of a memorial. That is, it serves us to make note as to why Jesus was there to begin with. Have you ever looked at the origin of thorns? Don't you find it interesting that when God created man and God created the Garden of Eden, there were no thorns? As a matter of fact, thorns came as a result of sin. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 17, Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, 
and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, uh, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. I started to use this verse to prove why you shouldn't eat vegetables because it's obviously a result of sin in the garden. But that may be stretching it a little much. So I, I think actually the, the Hebrew word for herb is broccoli. So it's just <laughs> not sure on that. I'm, I should stand over here when I say that and not behind the sacred desk. Huh? But I couldn't find that anywhere I looked, but I couldn't find it. But what you see... What you're seeing here is simply this, that thorns are the result of sin. So as you stand by the cross, we are reminded that once again, the scriptures tell us that he who knew no sin was made sin for us. And the reason he's on that cross to begin with is because of sin, not his, ours, ours. So that crown meant to condemn, meant to mock, serves as a reminder he is dying for the sins of the world, for our sins. The people who stood by should have recognized who the Messiah was. He came into his own and his own received him not. Some 500 years before Jesus was even born, the prophet Isaiah wrote things about this day that if you were standing by the cross, perhaps you should have been able to recall the words of the prophet. In Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 3, he is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Before I move on, I want to share with you the words penned down by Jenny Husey, a poet, nearly a hundred years ago. She wrote simply, King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. Lest I forget thy thorn-crowned brow, lead me to Calvary. Show me the tomb where thou wast laid, tenderly mourned and wept, angels in robes of light arrayed, guarded thee whilst thou slept. Let me, like Mary, through the gloom, come with a gift for thee. Show to me the empty tomb, lead me to Calvary. Lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, Lest I forget thy love for me, lead me to Calvary. Before I move on, I hope that you'll pay attention to the crown, the condemning crown. Secondly, I want you to see something else that was by the cross, if you will. And that's uh, what we're going to call simply the confused crowd. The confused crowd. In Matthew's account, the Bible tells us, as the scene of the cross unfolds, that once they had taken Jesus and crucified him, there were a group of people who sat down and watched. 
Matthew chapter 27 verse 36 reads this way. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. In verse 39 of the same text, the Bible says, And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads. Now because of a verse like this, those who pass by, there is quite a bit of uh, uh, difference of opinion as to where exactly Jesus was crucified. Some of you may have heard he was crucified up on the hill, the place of the skull. Others may have heard he was perhaps crucified down on the road in front of the place of the skull. What a backdrop that would have been. Uh, the scenery that is there. Some of you have perhaps been there or maybe you've seen pictures of it. It is perhaps more um, understand, there's, there's more understanding that he would have been crucified on the main road that is down in front of the place of the skull at the place known as Golgotha. The reason being that the Bible tells us things like this, that people passed by and they spit upon him and they reviled him and they made fun of him. You got to remember that when Jesus was crucified, it was actually the day of the Passover lamb being slain. It was during the Passover. There were a multitude of people traveling in and out of Jerusalem. And would it not make more sense that instead of them detouring off the road and going up onto the hill, that the Romans would have crucified them for embarrassment sake right at the road and indeed many believe that is where he was but the point is this there were some who sat down and they made fun of him they watched him and they mocked him and they said things like this and many of you have no doubt read this portion of the scripture he saved others let him save himself let him prove to us that he is the son of God Come down from there. Now that's an interesting thing because had Jesus done that, there would have been no payment for our sin. But I find it interesting that the crowd was confused. Why do I call them confused? Well, first of all, they think they can tell God what to do. And then I find it interesting that this was the same crowd that a week earlier had palm trees in their hands. And on Palm Sunday, if you will, as Jesus entered the city, they were waving the palm trees shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us now. But you see what they were looking for was a political savior. There's always a group in the world today, and can I share it with you this way? I think it's important that we make note. Any society that tries to understand life's questions without God involved is a confused society. You can't answer questions like, where did I come from? Why am I here? Who am I accountable to? You can't answer any of those things without God being factored in. So I say to you, they were indeed confused. And in the world that you and I live in, we deal with people who are gender confused and relationship confused. And there's so much confusion going on. It is no wonder why people seem to be turning more even to drugs and more suicides are, are occurring. It's because people are confused. And I want to say to you, ladies and gentlemen, God holds the key that will unlock understanding if you'll go to him for it. You can get answers to the questions. And I know, hey, I know it sounds oversimplified to simply say it, but it's true. Jesus is the answer. Amen. He is the answer. He is the answer. The Bible speaks a lot about confusion. One of the things it says is, it says God is not the author of it. How about that? Amen? Not, God's not the reason you're confused. 
Uh, uh, James chapter 3 and verse 16 reads this way. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Confusion. I find it interesting that this crowd is sitting there and they're telling God what to do. They tell him, come down from there. Come down from there. Do, do we not live in a society where people say things like this? You know, if God is a God of love like you say he is, then why are there people starving to death in parts of the world? Why is there hunger? Why is there cancer? Why is there disease? Why is there all? If God is a God like you say he is, why doesn't he just cure all of that stuff? And yet Jesus said things like, the poor you have with you always. And he said his kingdom was not of this earth. One of the things that people tend to misunderstand is this is not a redeemed world. This is an unredeemed world. It, it is because of sin that we're dealing with what we're dealing with. And had Jesus come down from the cross, listen, the cross, the crucifixion was not to prove that he was God. Let me make that very clear. The crucifixion was to prove that God loves you. It wasn't to prove that he was God. It was the resurrection that was to prove he was God. You say, do you have a verse of scripture on that? Matter of fact, I do. <laughs> Romans chapter 1 and verse number 4 says, And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Dying on the cross should have conveyed to the crowd that was sitting there how much God loves them. Raising from the dead proved that he was God. That he was God. So I ask you to see with me this confused crowd. And hear them as they cry out. I do, I do believe that that whole thing of telling God what to do. Instead of asking God what to do. Is something that's consistent with humanism in the day that we live. Because humanism basically teaches that you are God. And that God exists for you if he exists at all. And we sometimes feel that way and live that way. We think God is there to serve us. We, we think our, our prayers may sound something like, Lord, this is what I need you to do. I don't think I got a single amen in that whole thing right there. I was listening. I didn't get one. Instead of God, what do you want me to do? God, this is what I need you to do for me right now, today. We exist for him. He does not exist for us. And that's important that we make note of. Well, there is a third thing, and not only are there things that we would see, but there are some things that we would hear if you were standing by the cross. And I want to give those to you now. But basically, we're going to call this the concerned Christ. I want you to hear some of what Jesus said while he was on the cross. Most of you know that there are seven sayings recorded in the Bible of Jesus on the cross. Now, they in themselves are a series, and so I'm going to try to be brief uh, and not keep you here uh, real late, but uh, actually you'll probably be out a few minutes early. I don't know. Depends on how, how much amen you do in the rest of this service. <laughs> you amen, I'll just keep, I'll go on. I'll get through. But um, we're going to call them, I'm going to name these sayings to you. The first one is called a prayer, simply. It's just a prayer. Luke 23, verse 34. You're probably familiar with it. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. Let me pause a moment concerning this. I find it interesting. Now, there are two types, two types of people in the Bible that we are instructed to forgive and have an example for forgiving. Are you ready for this? Because some of you have been wanting to know that, I know. You've been, you've been all week long, you've been thinking, now, who do I have to forgive? Amen? 
So let me give it to you. One is those who ask you, and the second are those who don't. And Jesus is a great, he's showing us a great example right here of forgiving people who don't ask him. Not one time do we hear anything from this confused crowd of, Lord, forgive me, not one of them. Even the thief on the cross who comes to know him, he says, remember me. But the idea behind all of this is that you are to forgive and we are to forgive. And Jesus sets an example, even of those, we're to forgive those who don't ask us for forgiveness. Well, I can add a few more points if you want. No. Secondly, there is a promise that is recorded. Luke 23, verse 43. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That statement was made to one of the criminals, one of the thieves on the cross. There were two crucified with Jesus. We're going to come back to that thought in a little bit. So I'm going to uh, leave that where it is as far as a promise is made. And look at number three, the third saying of Jesus. We're going to call a provision. We read this earlier, John 19, verse 27. He said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. I, I love this about Jesus. Here he is showing concern for Mary. And have you ever really tried to put yourself in Mary's sandals as to what that must have been like? I mean, first of all, your, your journey with Jesus starts out, you're a very young girl who has never been with a man and you are now with child ostracized in the community, almost stoned, could have been stoned, could have been put away by your fiance, Joseph, am I right? Have you ever really thought about all she went through? And then after the birth of Jesus, she brings him to the temple and she hears the prophecy while he's only eight days old. She hears the prophecy concerning the things that he must suffer and how she hides these things in her heart and holds on to them. And here she is standing by the cross looking at her son, if you will, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that, that she helped God bring into the world, if you will. Here he is being crucified before her. And Jesus, with all that he's going through, all of the pain, all of the suffering, all of the sin that has been rolled onto him, Jesus stops. And looking at his mom, says to the disciple John, the only of the disciples named there, where were they? Have you ever wondered about that? Where were they? Were they off hiding? Were they off uh, perhaps fearful? If they were to make themselves known, is this something that, uh, that uh, uh, they might have been taking themselves? What? Where were they? Here's John. And Jesus, in this brief moment in time, when he's atoning for the sins of the world, the sins of the world, he stops and he takes care of Mary. What an example it is for us to take care of those who have taken care of us. What a tenderness and a compassion is shown. And how faithful is John that he would entrust Mary to John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. 
There's a fourth statement that we're going to call the parting statement in our notes. And this is that statement in the scripture, Matthew 27, Eli, Eli, lamas the batsthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We dealt with this earlier in our series, but let me pause a moment in case you were not with us and you haven't had a chance to listen to it online. Uh, I do not believe that this is somehow God the Father has turned his back on God the Son because he is carrying the sin of the world upon him at that time. I don't, I, don't, I don't agree with that assessment. I know there are some people who teach that. I happen to believe that God sees all things and knows all things and he can see sin no matter uh, what it is and where it is. He, he's not oblivious to any of it. If he were to turn his back on sin, he wouldn't be looking at any of us. Amen? So it just doesn't make sense. What does make sense is Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that Jesus, when he had by himself purged us from our sins, sat down at the right hand of, uh, of his Father there in heaven. You say, what are you getting at? I'm saying for an instant in time, you might remember that Jesus did all things with his Father. He said, I and my Father are one. But one thing he could not do with his Father, and for this instant in all of eternity, there had to be a sacrifice and a, a person or a one who receives the sacrifice. So Jesus was the sacrifice, and God the Father receives the sacrifice and so we have this parting for a brief moment in time and what a horror that was to the Lord Jesus Christ and then we have the parched statement we'll call it number five on our list of seven statements moving right along can I get an amen, amen. you're surprised aren't you five already number five the part statement. You might remember this one. The Bible tells us in uh, John chapter 19 verse 28. After this Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished. That the scripture might be fulfilled said I thirst. I thirst. I want you to imagine this for a moment. One commentator I read said that Jesus could have simply thought the thought. And God would have poured down rain for him at that very moment. He's, he's the commander of the rain. Is he not? The creator of it. The same one who causes it to rain at his, at his design and, and upon his command and causes the waves to be still and, and be restrained according to the borders that he has set on them. This same one said, I thirst. I thirst. Those disciples, those disciples were not found that would have heard him talk about how you could receive, anybody could receive the reward of a prophet if you simply give a cup of water in my name. But no one came to give him a cup of water. No one offered it. John Phillips asked the question, where was the woman at the well? Where was the woman at the well who Jesus met and said, if you'll take of the water that I have for you, you'll never thirst again. Where were those who could have ministered in, in, in the name of Christ to the Christ? Where were they? They were not found. A sponge with vinegar and gall was handed to him and placed upon his lips. The sixth saying is what we will call the perfecting statement. Without a doubt, I think my favorite of all of them is this statement. The Bible says, so, so Jesus, when he had received the sour wine, John 19 verse 30, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head gave up his spirit. It is finished. 
What is finished? Think with me for a moment. What is finished? Everything is finished that needed to be finished. All of sin now has been atoned for. No matter who you are and where you're from and what you've done, forgiveness is available through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It is finished. It is finished. I heard the story or actually read the story of someone coming to D.L. Moody after one of his crusades and they came and said, what do I do? What can I do in order to be saved? And Moody said, you're too late. He said, that was done hundreds of years ago. Jesus did it all. All you have to do is receive him. That's it. You can't work your way to heaven. The work for salvation was done through Jesus Christ. And he said... It is finished. It is finished. There is another saying recorded for us in Luke chapter 23 and verse 46. It is one that we will call a prospective statement because Jesus makes the statement. And I think without a doubt, uh, prospectively speaking, of being reunited with his father. And here he says in verse 46 of Luke 23. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. He breathed his last. One of the uh, amazing passages in the Bible to me is John 17, where Jesus is praying to his Father and he says something like, Restore to me the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. Can you imagine what that relationship must have been like for all of eternity past? God the Son, known as God the Word, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Think about the relationship before he became flesh. That's what Jesus is thinking about when he cries out this last saying from the cross. He's thinking about a reunion that he's about to have. And what a great time that is going to be. He's finished now. He commits his spirit into the hands of the Father. And the work has been done. Why? Because he's a concerned Christ. Because he loved us. It wasn't for sin that he had committed, was it? It was for our sin that he went through all of this. Well, last of all, I want you to see this with me before we leave the cross. Something we're going to call simply the confessing cries. The confessing cries. Those of you that are familiar with the story know about the thieves on the cross beside Jesus. Arthur Pink, A.W. Pink, made this statement. He said, at his birth he was surrounded by the beasts of the field. Now at his death he is numbered with the refuse of humanity. To show the position that the Savior took as our substitute. Well put. I would say, the thief on the cross, one of them. Isn't it interesting that both of them saw the same thing? Both of them heard the same thing? May I put it this way to you? Both of them were by the cross. Both of them began by reviling, the Bible says. Both of them began that way. But one of them had a change of heart. I don't know exactly what did it. I cannot tell you. The Bible does not say. I don't know if it was one of those seven sayings. I don't know. 
If it was an understanding, no doubt because of his own testimony, which we're about to read, he knew that Jesus had done nothing to deserve what he was going through. And he makes some sort of a a display of faith, a comment, a confession of who he is. And we have that story recorded for us. But one continued to revile while the other repented. If that is not indicative of what happens today when the cross is presented I do not know what is some will accept it and receive Christ by repenting of their sin and others will reject it and continue on their way cold and calloused toward the one that died in the middle the Lord Jesus Christ Luke chapter 23, the Bible records for us these words beginning in verse 32. There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then one of the criminals, verse 39 says, one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Sound familiar? It was the same thing that the crowd was saying. But the other, verse 40 says, but the other answering rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, For we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is an interesting term. In the Old Testament, David the psalmist said, You will not leave my soul in hell. The Hebrew word is Sheol. In Luke chapter 16, we have this picture of Lazarus who laid at the gate of the rich man. You remember the story? Both died. The rich man was carried into a place, Sheol, which is the abode of the dead. Only he was over in torments, in flames, and in darkness. While Lazarus was in a place called Abraham's bosom. And between the two, there was a great gulf fixed, a huge ravine. You say, well, first of all, preacher, that doesn't make any sense because you can't have fire and have darkness. Well, in actuality, even science will tell you that in the center of the earth, there is molten lava and pitch black darkness. Lava is a little bit like blood in that blood is very dark, almost black, until it is oxygenated and then it turns red. Lava does the same thing. So without the oxygen and the sulfur that is involved in this place, you would have molten lava, a sea of fire. Could I say it another way? A lake of fire. And so there we have the separation. In the Old Testament, by the way, people in the Old Testament are saved just like people in the New Testament are saved. Only you and I in the New Testament era, we are saved by faith looking back on the cross 
and back on what Jesus did. If you were in the Old Testament, you were saved by looking forward to the cross and forward to what Jesus was going to do. And the Old Testament prophets such as Isaiah are filled with the knowledge of who Jesus was. Enough knowledge that those who stood by the cross that day should have recognized who Jesus was. But the Bible tells us Jesus looked at the one thief and he said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. What does that mean? The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter number 4 that when Jesus died on the cross, he descended into the earth before he ascended. And the Bible says he led captivity captive. That's an interesting phrase. That is, he took the prisoners. It's a military term that refers to prisoners that have been taken and captured. And literally, if you were in the Old Testament, with only a few exceptions, this happened. If you were in the Old Testament and you died with a faith in the coming Messiah, you went to the place called paradise, otherwise known as Abraham's bosom. And it was down. Later, Paul said, I was caught up into the third heaven. Do you remember him saying that? So paradise had been moved. Who moved it? Again, Ephesians 4. The Bible says Jesus descended into the earth before he ascended and he led those who were there. Peter said he preached to the prisoners that were in there. Jesus showed up on the scene and there was Abraham and there was David and there was Lazarus and there were the others from the Old Testament and, and he showed up and said it's done. It's been finished now. I can take you now into the presence of my father you say why couldn't they go before good question Hebrews tells us the answer the book of Hebrews says that the blood of goats and bulls only covers sin the blood of Jesus Christ hear me now washes it away washes it away it's a remarkable thing that Jesus did that day so he looks at the thief on the cross and he says, today, you're going to go with me to paradise. May I say to you that the thief on the cross was never baptized. So if you happen to believe that baptism is a part of your salvation, you've got something you need to look at. Baptism is a work and you cannot work your way to heaven. The water doesn't wash away sin. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can do that. May I also draw your attention to the fact that the thief on the cross never had an opportunity to do anything as far as works were concerned. It wasn't as though he came down off that cross and did anything for the cause of Christ. You cannot earn your way to heaven. It ceases to be grace when you think you can earn it. But yet Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. The Bible tells us now that paradise has been moved and heaven is now up as Paul referred to it. That to be absent from the body, Paul said, is to be present with the Lord. So if you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ and you've trusted Christ as your Savior and you pass away from this life, this old body gets left behind, but the spirit, which is eternal, goes immediately into the presence of God. Amen. That's a wonderful thing to note. So we have the thief on the cross who cries out. The confessing cry, Lord, he called him. But then there's another person I want to show you before we close this message. He is someone that the Bible introduces to us as the centurion who had been given the guard of Jesus. This was a very serious thing. And the Bible records for us in Matthew chapter 27 in verse number 54 
So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, This was the Son of God. Truly, this was the Son of God, the centurion said. One commentator I was reading on the subject said, You must understand that the Roman centurion, the Roman soldier was trained to fear nothing. And the Bible says they were greatly afraid. They were standing by the cross and, and the earthquake began to happen and the sky grew dark and, and there was something unique about what they had heard this man say. There was something unusual about all of it and standing by the cross. The centurion says, Truly, this was the Son of God. John Phillips in his commentary said he has no doubt that when he gets to heaven, he's there by the way now, he's passed away, but he said, I will see the centurion. I believe I'll see the centurion there. In his commentary on this, Phillips adds this question. Is it nothing to you? In reference to the cross of Jesus Christ, in reference to standing by the cross, in reference to being there and seeing these things and hearing these things and revisiting this place, I ask the question, is it nothing to you? Can you stand by the cross and leave unchanged? Can you see what he has done and why he has done it and it not move you or motivate you to live for him with the commitment that he died for you with? Will we leave unchanged? Will we forget that we were even there 